wonderful to be here. Thank you guys for being so welcoming. Uh, my husband and my son are sitting over there. They came with me from Tulsa Chi Alpha. Yeah, yeah. And man, I've just had such a wonderful day hanging out with your um, CMITs, your interns, your um, staff. You just have been such a welcoming group to me and my family, so thank you. Sam Houston, to our family, is kind of like, you know, the place to be at. Um, when I was a Chi Alpha student even, I would hear about like these stories, you know, these whispers about this place that launched out missionaries. And I would be like, wow, this is such a cool place and I'm standing in that place. So it's so exciting for me to be at a place that has such a rich history of sending people into the world, including India. I know some missionaries in India that have come from Sam Houston. So thank you guys for going and being about the work of the Lord. You probably already noticed, I don't look like I'm from around here, right? <laughs> Maybe my English is a little bit more sanitized than most accented English, but still, there's an accent there. I remember not too long ago, I was sitting um, in an interview, and I was in the waiting room of the interview, and they were looking for someone called Cynthia Dobbs, which happens to be my name. This lady comes out and she says, Cynthia Dobbs, and I stand up, and she just looks right over me and she's searching around for Cynthia Dobbs. And, and I'm like, hello, it's me. And so she actually asks me to show her my ID because she does not believe that this five foot three Indian woman's name would be Cynthia Dobbs. Because when you think of a Cynthia Dobbs, you're probably looking for a white girl, right? Or maybe Hispanic or, or something like that, but not like someone from India. Like who names, you know, who, who thinks that someone from India could be named Cynthia? It's been like that my whole life. I show up in places and people don't believe. It doesn't make sense that I'm there, including here today. You know, there could have been 40 different people that could articulate the message that I'm about to share with you better. But in God's design, he's chosen someone who is not from this country, who does not speak English as her primary language to be the message bearer for tonight. That's how God does. He's crazy like that. Like his math and methodology, I, I try to figure it out. I'm like, I just quit because there's no way to figure it out, right? The whole your ways are higher than my ways kind of thing. I'm an unlikely person to be taking the gospel to unknown places. In the Bible, you'll see people like this all the time. God chooses the weakest link in a family or the worst communicator. Moses was a stutterer and he says, okay, you're going to go do this for me. He takes Paul, who was actually a persecutor of Christians, to be the preacher who goes and bears the message. Like, who thinks that up? That's crazy, isn't it? In the Bible, we see people like this all the time that are such unlikely candidates. And today, we're going to talk about someone who is exactly like that. We're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 10. We're going to read verses 25 through 37. Just to set it up a little bit. The book of Luke is a book written to the Gentiles. It's a gospel. It's a presentation of the stories of Jesus and his life and his acts. Luke actually has a chapter two, another book. What do we think it is? Acts, yeah. Bible trivia people, that's awesome, Acts. So Luke is writing to a Gentile audience. So Luke's gospel specifically highlights stories where Gentiles who are people who are grafted into um, God's family who are not directly Jews, their stories are present. And this is one such a story. As I'm reading the story, I want you to pay attention to the major characters in the story. There are a few of them. And then we're going to kind of talk from the perspectives of those people. Now, before, before I even start, we're, we're going we're gonna to take a look at this from a different angle today. This is the story of the Samaritan. Have you guys heard of the story? Yes. 
the Samaritan man. Now, I want you to throw all, leave all your preconceived ideas outside. We're going to look at it in a different way today. So will you go with me on a journey? We'll look at it with a fresh, fresh pair of eyes. Perfect. All right, let's pray and ask the Lord to come and teach us. Can we do that? And then we'll jump in. Father, we're so grateful, God, that you would choose today to be the day that we gather together and worship you. Lord, that we think about you and your mission. Lord, that we would reside, Lord, in the presence of the Holy Spirit. God, I just pray, Lord, that, that you will come and speak to every single heart here, Lord, that you will speak to us or speak to me, God. Lord, that you will change us, that we would not leave this room unchanged. Lord, that the power of your word will impact our hearts. Lord, that we will be true disciples that stand up and do whatever you ask us to do. God, I just pray that you will give us courage to be people who obey you immediately. And Lord, prompt us today to more obedience in you. We love you, Jesus. We invite you here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Luke chapter 10, we're in verses 25 through 37, like I said. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So Jesus is hanging out with a group of people and he's sharing his messages like he usually does. And this lawyer who, who is supposed to articulate religious law to the people stands up and is about to put Jesus to the test. That's the context of the story. Saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. I love Jesus. Everything's so simple. Just do this. You're good. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? There's always this smart alecky one that thinks he can like, you know, outsmart Jesus. It never works out, but they always try. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, this road between Jerusalem and Jericho was a major thoroughfare for trading caravans and, and military personnel and pilgrims who visited Jerusalem multiple times. It's kind of like on a downslope. It's like a, a dry, arid area. Think like a, a, a hilly place. They call it a wadi. And, and it has narrow spaces in it, and it's a half a mile down, downward incline. That's the road that they are traveling, right? And, and these routes, they're in the desert, and no one you know, usually goes there for kicks and giggles. You have a purpose. If you're going in that, in that road from Jerusalem to Jericho, there's a purpose. It's also because it's isolated and not many people travel there without any reason. It's a place where bandits and robbers will come and steal things because they can run back into the desert where they cannot be followed because there's multiple exits from that road and they will not be pursued. So when Jesus said that a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, they weren't hypothetically thinking about a maybe story. It's an actual story, an actual road. They would have pictured this very narrow road that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho because many of those Jews would have actually traveled that road. Yeah. And this person is robbed and, and he is beaten on this road. If he, was, if he was to have been robbed and beaten in this road, he would have been in a very vulnerable position. There was no water for miles. He is exposed to the elements, right? In some spaces, the, the road is so narrow that, that, you know, if a person was lying down on the floor and, and hurt, if, if someone was passing by, you would have to actually step over them to avoid them, avoid hitting them. So the next part, when we see people going through that road, we know that it wasn't like they kind of saw him, glanced him, and they were, they were, he was like 10 feet away. He was right there immediately right next to these people that are going to step over him or walk walk in the same road as where this guy is hurt. So going back to scriptures, 
He's asking, who is my neighbor? And he says, a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So the priest ignored him and kind of squished to the other side and, and, and went away. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? The one who showed him mercy, the lawyer says. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The characters at play, you've got this priest who is a religious leader who's supposed to know the law of the Lord, which says that you're supposed to take care of people who are you know, wounded and injured. You're supposed to take care of the oppressed. That, that's in the law, and the priest is supposed to follow the law. Then you have the Levite who is part of the priestly family. He's also exposed to the law. He, he knows what it is that he's supposed to do. He's supposed to do the right thing according to the law. And these two people who usually are the heroes, the protagonists in the story, come by and watch this injured man and they don't do anything. And the Samaritan, who according to the Jews is usually the villain in the story, becomes the protagonist in the story. Jesus literally flips the script and makes the bad guy the good guy, right? You see in, in the story of the women at the well, she's a Samaritan woman too. When the disciples come back and see Jesus talking to this woman from Samaria, they're confused as to why Jesus is in Samaria. You're supposed to avoid these people. Don't you know that they rob and thieve and hurt? See, Jesus flipped the script where the guy that was supposed to be the robber and the thief and the one that wounds now is actually the one that redeems and saves and patches up wounds and puts himself on the line for the one that is afflicted. There are a lot of similarities between this and how we as Jesus followers need to approach ministering to other people. The Samaritan, he was compelled by compassion. He, wound, he, he saw the wounds of the man and he bound up those wounds. He was an expert at articulating truth with action instead of being an expert at just articulating truth like the priest and the Levite. See, he put his money where his mouth was. He actually took his own money and put it on the line for someone that he just met on the road. And then he took responsibility for this other person and invited a person with means, the innkeeper, to come and help him on his journey of rescuing this, this random new, new person he just met. See, the priest and the Levite calculated the risk. They probably thought, if I touch this man, I would become what is called a ceremonially unclean, which was a big thing in those days. See, the center for society was um, the temple. And if you were ceremonially unclean and you touched someone who was wounded and this guy was half dead, if he dies and I touched a dead body, then I can't be in community for a certain period of time. I have to go through all the rituals that would, that would um, make me clean again before I could be in community. Maybe they thought that. Or maybe they thought, I don't know who this guy is. Why am I going to give up my money and, and my resources to take care of this one? I'm just going to go on my way. Or maybe they thought, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. I can't, I can't handle this right now. I've got other things waiting at home. More important business, this is an interruption in my day, and, I, and, and this person is not worthy of, of standing and, and taking care of. See, the Samaritan refused to let the risk 
stand in the way of redemption. See, his idea of the, the gospel or idea of what is good and right outweighed his comfort and what would be convenient for him in the minute. Who will we be today? Will we be the priest and the Levite knowing truth but not acting upon truth? Or will we be the Samaritan who puts himself on the line on behalf of the wounded and hurting person? Think with me for a minute and be honest with yourself. What do you do when you see an international on your campus? Do you engage in a friendly conversation? Do you see them and you don't know what language they speak, what food they eat, what cultural values they hold, and it kind of freaks you out a little bit, and you're like, ah, maybe I'll try it tomorrow and walk away? Do you do some mental math on, on how many students you're already taking care of and discipling and how adding one more would be too much for your plate right now, so maybe I just have enough and, and I will try and take care of what I've got right now? Do you decide that it's too much because of your major or the lack of your funds or maybe I don't have enough people to throw at this problem? I don't have enough cultural acumen to understand what's going on? Or simply put, you're just in a place where like the priest and the Levite, it's just easy to walk away right this minute. Or maybe you are one of the rare few that would reach out and interact with international students on your campus, but they're more like, like a responsibility than a, a person who I need to be in relationship with and bring to the Father. Maybe it's just about friendship, just to be friends with you, and we forget that the ultimate reason why we befriend them is so that they can meet our best friend, who is Jesus. See, international students on your campus are not just, you know, lost or wounded or anything like that, but they're orphans without a father. See, many of them have not heard the good news that there is a God who loves them so much, who gave up his own son on behalf of them. See, to me, even though I was, I was Christian when I grew up in India, I didn't understand that, that a God like that existed who would value me as his daughter the same way as he valued his sons. That just blew my mind, that, that I was of value to, to my God. See, so if you belong to the average American campus, you don't have to look hard to find the international students. They're in your classrooms, both taking and teaching classes or tutoring you. They usually are working in the food service line in the cafeteria. They're part of the campus-approved workforce. They're huddled usually in the same corner week after week in predictable patterns, and if you were just to open your eyes, they're probably in the same road that you've been traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho in a corner. And maybe, friends, we haven't seen them, we've just stepped over them in our journeys. See, God wants you to know the nations on your campus so that through you they may get to know Him. That you would be a bridge between them and the gospel. God is interested in the nations not just because the nations are his reward, that's true, but the nations actually represent lost sons and daughters that don't know who the father is. How many of you would say like, hey, I really feel like this campus, God called me to this campus? Okay, quite a few of you. See, if God called you to this campus, then all of your campus is yours to go reach, and the international students are part of that campus, and they are your spiritual dominion. God has given you spiritual authority to go and use your influence as a kingdom ambassador to reach those people. They are part of the people group that the Lord has sent you to reach. You see, we, we emphasize, we, we say that verse, we say, go make disciples of what? We know that, we repeat that, but sometimes we skip the all nations part. See, the obstacles that you are experiencing, I'm inexperienced, I don't have enough cultural understanding. What if I say something or do something that is offensive? I don't have enough resources. 
We can't let those real obstacles, the risks that we would have to mitigate, stand in the way of redemption. If God said, go disciple all nations, that's exactly what you and I need to be doing. You see, when I first came to the United States, I have some pictures to show you, so maybe you can, you can see that um, a little picture of me and my dad here. I came to the United States in 2002, and man, my Kayafa family, they were so awesome to me. That scraggly-looking toothpick of a child is me right there. So <laughs> those were the days. But anyway, <laughs> that's me and my dad. So I come to New York in 2002, and I'm so glad that my Kayafa people that came after me didn't wait to understand the culture of India better or figure out how not to offend me before they literally came and, and you know, attacked me with love you know, and brought me into community. The very first person that invited me into community, he saw that, that I came from a different culture. Most Chi Alpha things started at 8 p.m. and my curfew was at 8 p.m. So when I was invited into Chi Alpha, he understood, looking at my cultural lens, it's just not possible for an Indian girl to leave at 8 p.m. So what did he do? Did he quit? No. He went and actually talked to my dad and got permission to go to Chi Alpha service, like you guys are sitting here, and then bring me back slavely. See, he didn't let like, any excuse stand in the way of making a way for me to come and be part of the fellowship. I remember in those, in those days, you know, instead of just inviting me to group parties and, and, and things that everybody was doing, they weren't thinking about me programmatically. This is so important. Sometimes like, we just invite international students to come to a party or something. They thought of me personally. They took me out to go eat with them. And, and I remember going to my very first like, diner in New York and having root beer with uh, these, in, these new friends of mine. Not too long before that, we'd gone to a, there's another picture here, we went to a uh, salt-like thing. I don't remember what they called it at that time. I didn't even know that there was a salt at that time. And it was me and my friends, and, and there was this guy called E. Scott Martin, and, and he showed up over here, and he was like talking like this, right? And my friends told me that an alligator bit his finger, and I believed them. <laughs> it was so much fun, and then I later on realized that's not actually what happened. You know, it was, it was some farming accident or some such thing. They taught me how to understand the people around me. They taught me how to eat an avocado. I'd never heard of an avocado before in my entire life. You know, so many first experiences with my friends. And then they would, when I had a hard time and, and, and American culture kind of clashed against Indian culture and I was trying to make sense of who I was and, and what, what God had called me to do, right? They would help me, they would stay up with me through the night, talking to me on the phone, counseling me, helping me, just embracing me, championing me. You see, when, when my first friend found me and invited me into this group, he, was, he wasn't my only friend. He invited me and then he connected me with other people in the group. Think about it this way. Say your mom or dad adopts a, a, a child and brings that child to, to your house and your dad is the only one that takes care of the kid. You know, he wakes up in the morning, takes the kid to school, brings the kid back, plays ball with him, feeds him and puts him to bed. That's one experience. The other experience is dad wakes up in the morning and takes the kid to school. Mom helps with homework. You know, brothers and sisters play together. See, one kid would experience maybe orphanhood a little bit more strongly than the other one. The other one would feel embraced by the family, right? It's so important for us not just to keep our, our international friends in a zone where there's a zone where I hang out with you, and then I've got the other zones, my Kayafa zone and my family zone and my this zone and my that zone. That's what my Kayafa friends did for me. They kind of enveloped me into the group, and there was, there was so much love and opportunity for me to ask real questions in that area. You see, I grew up in a very high academic family. In India, you can either be a doctor, 
a lawyer, an engineer, or a failure. Those are your four options. So I was very motivated to not be a failure. I was the first born in the entire line in my dad's side of the family, so there was a lot of pressure to perform. My mom passed away when I was 12 years old, and she was really the one that introduced me to faith, and, and she was, no, no other way to put it, she was like a Pentecostal fire-breathing dragon, you know? I mean, she'd pray for people to get healed, and they'll get healed. But I lost her a little too soon in the sense that the discipleship that could have happened did not have an opportunity to happen. So I was one of those Christians that was very safe in my Christianity. I would show up to church every Sunday, sit in the same pew, and held that pew down. I will make sure that this pew does not move anywhere. That was my job, right? I had no idea that, that this God who loves me so much also loves the people that are around me so much and, and that I needed to be about his mission. If I say that I love him, then what he loves, which is human beings, need to matter to me. I need to do something about the fact that he loves them and they don't even know that he loves them. And these Kayafa people, they were just like talking in Bible studies and everything that they said would convict me, not because they're pointedly talking to me, but they're just opening up the Bible and reading. And I'm like, oh, I don't do that. That's not good. You know what I mean? My prayer life was so terrible and they were like convicting me of my prayer life. You know, mostly I prayed for my will to be done on earth with the help of heaven, not for God's will to be done on earth, right? And they kind of would just pray and, and ask for God's will to be done on earth. And I saw them and, and how they modeled prayer and I ached to have that kind of relationship with the Lord. Then they invited me to go through a leadership training program because they wouldn't just like invite me into fellowship with them, they wanted to also see me lead. Did you see in the Samaritan story, Jesus flipped the script because the Jews had this idea of looking at the Samaritans just as the people that either hurt me or the people that I need to go help or, or need to be um, charitable towards. They had never seen a Samaritan as a hero. See, my international, my, my, um, my Kayafa friends didn't just look at me as the person that needs to be reached, but they actually looked at me as a person with the potential to go and tell the good news to other people. That just radically changed my life. They invited me to lead Bible study. And I was so scared the first time I led Bible study, the title or, or the topic of my Bible study was fear. I led the Bible study on fear. Slowly, I just started getting convicted. Man, I've got to do something about this. I can't just say that I love Jesus and not do anything about what he loves the most. They invite me to join the leadership training program, and I really want to, but I can't because there's, I'm taking 22 credits. I got permission from the dean of my department to do that. I have an idea that I'm going to like get my medical degree by the time I'm 25 and cure cancer by the time I'm 27. You know? Yeah, naive, but that's where we were. So I'm, I'm in multiple clubs, I'm trying to achieve, I'm trying to paint a picture of some of the lenses through which your international friends are living right now, some of the places where they're living right now. Because just making it is not enough. Just making it is not enough because a lot, for a lot of us, our families took the last bit of their money together, put it together and sent us over here so we could be part of the redemptive arc of their family. But how cool would it be if they left Sam Houston, not just with a degree, but with a savior. If they can go back into their home country and they can tell their brothers, their sisters, their town about who Jesus is, they already have the cultural conditioning, they already have the language capacity. What if they could be a missionary? And that is really what my Kayafa friends did for me. They started discipling me, 
and, and creating on-ramps for my success. And that's such an important thing with international students. We can't just create shortcuts for them to get into things and access things, but we need to create on-ramps. So instead of just saying, oh, you've got 22 credits and you can't come to leadership training, what my Kyle pastor did was those classes that I could not attend, they made sure that I got the content in a different way, but I still had to go do all the evangelism outreaches and discipleship stuff just like everybody else, but the paradigm of how I did it looked a little bit different. You see how much work it took to kind of look at it and bring it down to my level in order for me to be helped to become a leader? But here's the, here's the cool thing. They had no idea what they were investing into. They didn't know that I was going to be a Chi Alpha pastor. I could have been one or, or I could have just gone on with my life and become a medical doctor or, or something else. See, they sowed without knowing what the Lord might bring out of it. And now, in an insane fashion, Instead of being a missionary to India, the Lord has called me to be a missionary to the campuses in the United States. How crazy is that? Like we raise missions money and send missionaries to India, right? And the Lord raised me up from India and said that, hey, you need to go be a missionary to the United States. Right now, the center of Christianity is moving to the global south. What that means is places like Mexico, India, and El Salvador have a lot more Christians or are starting to have a lot more converts to Christianity than the global north, which is North America and, and where we are at, right? This is God's strategy. Over the past decade, the number of forcibly displaced people has more than doubled. It was 41 million in 2010 and is 82.4 million in 2020. The United States is a main destination for most of those people since 1970. They come here. I just wonder, could it be that it's God's strategy that he's bringing those people here so they can catch on fire for Jesus? And that they could be the missionaries that go alongside us into all the world and reach all of the world for the gospel's sake? You see, if we just look at the international student as someone that needs to be ministered to and not not as a missionary alongside us, I think we'll only see part of God's ambition for them. And if we don't really count the cost, like the Samaritan, it cost him something. And in my conversation with you about my history with Kayafa, it just seems like it was a very straightforward, step one, they found me, step one, they introduced me to other people, step three, they put me through leadership training, and step four, boom, we're a missionary. No, friends, it wasn't like that. It was, there was so much spiritual warfare in the middle of it. The enemy fought both my friends that were trying to help me and me as I was trying to walk towards Jesus tooth and nail. But like the Samaritan, the risk is worth it. If we won't do it because we're motivated by our Father's heart, then who will, right? I think a lot of times we think of the world and, and how much need there is in the world and we want to send people out in order to reach the world. But if we overlook the unreached people groups that are not too far away right here walking amongst us right now, how will we account to the Father? What will we tell the Father when he calls us in account for the unreached people groups that we ignored in the library and in the cafeteria and in the worship services? They were just right there in the road between Jerusalem and Jericho and we just stepped over them and we walked away. See, we can't neglect the nations on our campus and continue to go to the nations across the seas, right? Because that would be hypocritical. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't do foreign missions. Believe me, like when I get to heaven, I'm going to say hi to my mom, and then I'm going to beeline to the missionary that went and spent their life in India so that my people group could know Jesus. Because that's the reason why I'm Christian. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. 
But simultaneously, we also need to be sent to the internationals that God has already placed on our campus. If we look at our time and our resources, and if we let the enemy whisper in our ears, scarcity mentality will kick in. We'll decide it's the risk is not worth the redemption. See, our job as Christians is to make a powerful but invisible God visible to a spiritually blind world. See, they can't see him a lot of times, but they can see you, they can see your hands, they can feel your hug, they can eat the food that you made, and they can experience the love that is embedded in the gospel through you. You're supposed to be Christ embodied. And the nations need you, my friends. People like me need you. And maybe they won't become a missionary, but if you can reconcile one lost son or daughter back to the father, that is a win for the kingdom. You see, in the Samaritan story, there's something very crucial you've got to note. He did everything that he could, but he was on his way to some place. So he gave everything that he possibly could to the innkeeper, and then he brought another person into the job. You see, we kind of think of success with the international students sometimes maybe as crossing the finish line of them saying yes to Jesus. That's not really success. Success is moving one step closer to Jesus. In any portion of discipleship, no matter who you're discipling, success is yesterday you were right here, one, now today you took a step closer to Jesus. And as we do that collectively as a community, maybe you move them one step closer where their idea of what a Christian is, is uncorrupted now. Did you know for much of the world, Christian is a bad word? It used to mean morally good, right, you know, people who follow good things. Now it does not mean that anymore. And your activity towards your international friend could actually redeem what it means to be Christian. So the next time they meet a Christian, maybe they trust that Christian, and that Christian gets to share a little bit of God's love, a little bit more of God's love. And if slowly and collectively we do this work together, then maybe one day they will reconcile their heart and their life to the Lord. If I can get Katie to come on the keys here as I'm wrapping up. You see, I can give you so many intellectual reasons as to why you should reach out to the nations on your campus. I could say, hey, God reveals different portions of who he is to different cultures and different ethnicities. We need each other. Um, you know, the collectivists usually think that we should all be together as the church and do things together, so we need that from them. Americans who are individualists might think that we need to uh, sort out our faith with fear and trembling, so we need each other. We need to kind of help each other understand portions of the good news. I could say, like I said earlier, that the global center for Christianity is moving to the global south, and so we need them, let's bring them in alongside us. I can give you so many different intellectual reasons. I could say it's God's kingdom strategy. But here's the thing, ultimately there's just one reason why we need to reach international students. Because God called you to disciple all nations. He's not just interested in you discipling people that look like you. He wants you to disciple people that look like him. And that is every single human being on the face of the earth. We all bear his image. It's always been about lost sons and daughters. And we can't just stop at reconciling lost sons and daughters that look like us. If you can throw that last picture up, this is a picture of some of the people that I've discipled and some of the people that, um, the people that I discipled have discipled. We have that. And while that's happening, I'll just explain to you what's really, what's really going on there. It's the next picture. You see, the people that I disciple don't look like me. They're not all from India, you know. Most of them look like you. 
these are, that's a picture from my coffee days in New York. They look like the predominant people group on the campus. But it's not just the predominant people group that is on the campus. We, we also have like, you know, students from India and Rwanda. You know, we have students from the Congo Republic that are part of the fellowship and part of the family, kingdom family that God has allowed for us to build. You, know, you might be thinking like, I know you're saying this, Cynthia, but I don't know the first thing about talking to an international student or, or even starting a conversation with them. And I want to quote the Bible to you, really, <laughs> right? In your weakness, friend, he's made strong. This we took just this last week. I was speaking at a women's conference and some of my girls from different seasons of life gathered together. And, and you see the girl at the very end on the right is from Rwanda. The rest of them are from the United States, but they're from all kinds of different ethnic backgrounds. That's what discipleship is supposed to look like. It's supposed to be a, a beautiful family, a mosaic, a smorgasbord. And we all come from different cultures, but we have one culture. When we're hanging out, we have our little jokes and, and our little things that we like to go check out and eat and, and you know, be together with. And God cultivated that family. You see, that's really God's ambition for, for you too. He wants to cultivate a kingdom family that is beautiful, that is multicultural, that is multi-ethnic, not so that we can have one in every color. That's not the goal so that we can have everyone. That is the goal. God wants every lost son and daughter to be part of the family. You see, if we go by the world, the world will give you the reason as to why you need to reach the nations as justice. Justice alone is not the goal. Reconciliation is. You see, it's like those cereal boxes. The cereal box will have like a little toy or something. And you can get the toy if you buy the cereal box and you'll get the cereal too, but we sometimes just shoot for the toy and lose the cereal. You know, we, we shoot for like bare minimum of what, what God wants to give us and not the whole thing. See, conversion is not the goal. Being, bring them into the family, discipleship is. See, friendship alone with you is not the goal. It's the beginning, friendship with Jesus is. Here's the thing, I've kind of belabored the point and I think you get it. Our ambitions for what God wants to do with our life is always too minimal. It's always self-protective. It's always risk managing. And I just wanna ask you to step out in faith and, and be the Samaritan on your campus. Flip the script. Go after the people that are wounded and overlooked. Go after the people that are alone. Go after the people that the Spirit is pointing out to you in the library and in the cafeteria and wherever you inhabit. You don't even have to go too far. With your head bowed and your eye closed, I'm just gonna ask you, I'm gonna make an invitation for you to just say yes to that. Like God, I am willing. I am willing to open my eyes to the people that are around me. God, I'm willing to go to the nations that are on my campus. God, I don't know how, but, but I'm willing to go. If that's you and you're saying like, God, I, I'm gonna try and come up with a strategy as to how I can reach the international students that are amongst me. If that's you, would you lift your hands? Just wanna thank you, thank you, thank you. Father, you see those hands and God, I just ask Lord that you will give my friends who are boldly raising their hands Lord, to be like the Samaritan and take the risk upon themselves and take the responsibility of being your redemptive hand on this campus. Father, I just pray that you will cultivate their heart. Lord, help them to steward your spirit and your presence. Lord, we love you so much, God. We want you for this campus. Lord, every portion, Lord, let every portion of Sam Houston, including the international students, have a witness of the gospel because we are here, Lord. Father, I just pray for equipping, 
God, I pray for anointing. And Lord, I pray for grit to overcome the spiritual warfare that will come against them when they go towards the international students here. So Lord, we just ask you, Lord, empower us and equip us, God, and send us out as an army towards the nations that are on this campus. In Jesus' name, amen. With your head bowed and your eye closed, I'm gonna make one more ask. Listen, some of you wanted to raise your hands, but it was hard because you were like struggling there for a minute saying like, I'm having a hard time loving people that look like me. I, I don't even understand how to begin to love people that look like, that don't look like me. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14, 15, it says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Christ's love compels us. See, charity, has an expiration date. Your altruism has an expiration date. If you just want to be nice to international students, that has an expiration date. But Christ's love does not have an expiration date. And friends, if you're saying like, I need more of Christ's love so that I could be compelled to go and reach the people that are around me. I don't want to be apathetic towards them. I want God's love to change me internally. And if you want more of God's love and you want to be just inhabited by God's love so that he can call out the people that you need to go love on. If that's you, would you lift your hands? I just wanna pray that God's love would compel us. Thank you. Just say, God, I just want more of you, Lord. I don't wanna be about me, I wanna be about you, but I'm not in the place where I can be about you, Jesus. I wanna be about you, God. Would your love compel me? Thank you, friends. Father, we just, Lord, you see every hand that went up. And God, this is, Lord, our, our step of surrender before you, God. We ask, Lord, that there were feeble humans. Lord, change our hearts from being like the priest and the Levite and give us the Samaritan's heart in Jesus' name. Father, I just pray for our hearts to expand with your love. God, I just pray, God, that you'll point people out to us. And Lord, let our hearts be overwhelmed with your love, Jesus. Compel us to go towards the nations because of your love and not because of some weird religious responsibility or any kind of altruism, Lord. Father, I just bless them, Lord, to know you and your love, God. Lord, I bless them, Lord, that in their abiding times, that, that as they abide in the true vine, joy and peace and love will fruit so much love that abounds, they can give it to the nations that are on the campus. And God, I just pray for Sam Houston Kayafa today, Lord. I just pray, God, that you will cause them to be successful in everything that they're doing. Lord, everyone that is going on a mission trip and everyone that is going to step out of this room in the mission field of the campus, God, I just pray that you will allow for all of their evangelistic and, and intercessory and discipleship efforts to be successful. Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you will expand the kingdom as you've done before in this place. Father, I just pray that you'll continue to expand the kingdom from Sam Houston. And Lord, send out missionaries into the campus and unto the world, Jesus. Lord, I bless this place. Lord, may your face shine upon this place. We love you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. I'm going to have Jason come up.